from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 25, recorded August 25, 2022. I am your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, joined as always by our director of strategy, Julia Alexander. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you? Pretty good. Late summer, getting ready for fall and iPhone events and stuff like that. And, uh, and how are you? Because we're in the middle of like what you've been prophesying for the last few months, which is like the deluge of expensive streaming content. It's happening now. It's it's starting. How how are you? How are you holding up with? Because I think I feel like the the House of the Dragon was the like starting gun of the of the high profile battle of of content for late summer. Yeah, I mean it's super exciting. It feels like I like I'm just excited to watch TV in a way that I have yeah. not been for a long time. Yeah. Like in the way that I've kind of been like there might be an exciting show, but I'm not necessarily excited for television as a whole and now that's changed and I'm just it's yeah, it's late summer. There's an iPhone event around the corner. I feel like we're getting back to maybe some normalcy. Yeah. Like I'm kind of like, "Oh, a little bit. Things yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Just a just a little bit uh, recognizable and and normal and um, not 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 normal, but like mm, a little more recognizable. Um, speaking of House of the Dragon, which I love the fact that um, George R. R. Martin just calls it Hot D. <laughs> I love the Hot D. Uh, Ten million estimated on night one premiere for. HBO and HBO Max, the ratings breakdowns are complicated, right? Because it's how many people watch live, how many people watch on HBO Max, how many yeah. people watched later in the week. Um, you know, ratings are complicated now, but it sounds like we had a good old fashioned big tune in on night one. I know that there were some reports that people had some outage issues with HBO Max. I streamed it not too long after it dropped. Uh, you know 6 p.m pacific but not too long after and and was all good on my end um and i was definitely one of those people who was tuning in which is which is funny because i know that for a lot of people game of thrones didn't end well and people were very grumpy about it there was a question of like could you know did it have franchise uh value was it going to get people to come back despite all of that and sure i mean i don't know if they'll stay we'll see right but in order to like you got to start by getting people to to try it and it seems like the franchise power was there at least for sunday night yeah i mean i think the 10 million views um as it came in via nielsen is pretty strong for them i mean it's, it's a strong debut i think it's a little bit under where i was expecting i think a few other people were expecting i was looking for an 11.5 million baseline um but you know, to your exact point, for a show that did not necessarily end super well, for a show that's been off the air for quite some time, for a spinoff that is focused on one specific family, you know, all these different things. I think 10 million is a really strong premiere. And I think it's got even stronger potential in Europe and the Middle East, even more so than the US. So that's really exciting for HBO and HBO Max as a whole, as they kind of increase their presence in those, in those different countries. I will say I had a lot of fun because um, I use an Apple TV box or, or you know, set, set top box and yep, opened up HBO Max right at 9 p.m. Eastern and there was no issues with it right at, at all. And I looked into it and all the issues apparently came from the Fire, Amazon Fire uh. TV stick. Um, that's where all the issues were. And I thought, one, that's just funny because it feels like a firmware update issue. But two, it's funny because of the way that we've positioned um, House of the Dragon versus Lord of the Rings. Like, that's kind of a funny, like, ha <laughs> isn't that, you know, ironic. But Your, your Amazon uh, streaming box is worse at HBO Max, I guess. I've, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but at one point I know it was the case that some services, and I think Netflix in particular, actually used different CDN settings, the content yeah. distribution network work for people out there who don't know to how do you get all these internet streams and it's you've got basically little servers all over the place that have preloaded all the content and then it finds the one that's basically closest to you and least busy and that's what streams to 
to you. It's often at your internet service provider. So if you're a Comcast internet person, they may actually even have a server sitting inside Comcast uh, in order to distribute it to you, or they've got a direct line out of the Comcast office to their distribution server. This is a whole, there's a whole complex infrastructure thing. They pay for for better, essentially for better network uh, transmission. This is what the whole net neutrality thing was was kind of touching on. Anyway, Apple TV, at least at, at some point, my understanding was using a different sort of set of CDN settings or even different servers than some of the other set-top boxes because people noticed, like, why does this work on the Apple TV and not on some other box? And the answer was, oh, yeah, we're using a different... See, I, it's like, I, don't tell anybody, <laughs> but I, uh, maybe that was happening here. I don't know. Yeah, I actually, I have a friend um, who works within Disney streaming, and, and we were talking about all this, this exact issue um, around the time... Of, I guess it would have been WandaVision more so than anything else and, and The Mandalorian. And um, Disney Plus kept going down, if you guys remember. Like, it kept going down at, like, 3 a.m. And I remember asking, yeah. I was like, what is the issue? What are you guys doing? And he, um, they were telling me, my friend, they were saying what a big part of the issue that they've seen across other streaming services, too, including, like, ESPN Plus, um, when they had major pay-per-view events on the UFC side, was that they weren't uh, routing the, the servers to the correct area to handle the load. So they start all their servers, to, like, for an extent, to an extent, were on the West Coast, and they needed them to be on the East Coast. And so they actually looked into that exact issue where they were like, where can we buy more server space via um, Amazon Web Services and reroute to handle the traffic? But I also think, and, like, I don't, this is my theory i think there's a you know not it's not great for customer satisfaction but it's great press when they get to be like our service went down because there was Mm. overload right they get to be like there's all this interest and it's going down and like isn't that great for our thing because we fixed it in 10 minutes people got to see it but right when it premiered things went down because it's so in demand i think there's Right. I think there's like a slight positive PR way that they can spin it out into being that I'm (laughs) my like conspiratorial brain is like it's not a bad thing for them if it goes down for a handful of users (laughs) and they're like we fixed it and also shows that people are interested in it right it gives the impression of 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 popularity and then it's okay to be interested in this thing because lots of people are it's funny i mentioned the iphone event earlier very similar dynamic right where for a while there apple was kind of happy to have people waiting in long lines for iphones because it became like a media event and people covered it and like oh this thing is so popular that they're waiting in line and let me be clear here waiting in line for a long time for an iphone is dumb and it's awful (laughs) but uh they did it for several years because it was that same thing which is like yes but it shows that we're successful and then at some point they realized uh no there's too many people who want to buy iphones and it's hurting our sales so we're gonna we're gonna encourage to you know ship it to your house (laughs) just stay in your house that day and you'll get your iphone um and but it's that idea right of like it is marketing even if it sucks for the users it is showing off how much people uh, want your product I will say I won a dinner out of it because I bet my friends that it was going to hold perfectly for like uh, on our end. I was like, I, and they, they bet that it would stutter. They didn't think it would go down Mm. completely, but they were like, we think it's going to stutter. You know, if we think of it going down completely is what happened with Euphoria's finale, right? Where it was like down for like 30 minutes. Like it was, you just could not get that either the app to load or you could actually not get like Euphoria to load. Mm. They were like, we think it stutters for like two, three minutes. And I was like, I I think it, I think it handles. I think it goes well. And in my household, it did. So I got a free dinner out of it. So I guess is that they spun up a bunch of extra capacity because they knew it was going to be huge. Right. And that's the other thing about, about streaming stuff is it's max capacity and it's uh, and oftentimes what happens is what kills them is unanticipated demand right like because if you can anticipate it you could probably deal with it it's when you if you you think it's going to be this and it turns out to be way more that's when your service goes down and maybe for euphoria they didn't they didn't expect it and they did expect it certainly for house of the dragon I mean, this is why you kind of have to give poor Disney. I mean, poor Disney feels like uh, an oxymoron. But, uh, you know, poor Disney credit when they were like, well, we just didn't think at 3 a.m. that it would it would go down. We didn't expect that to be a thing. And so, yeah, I think um, Jason and I will dedicate a whole show <laughs> to CDNs and just yeah. the process of it. But I'm glad. I mean, House of the Dragon securing the $10 million. We'll see what the live plus three days, live plus seven right. days. And then, of course, the month-long um attraction of of house of the dragon is but you know shocker 
House Game of Thrones still popular. Still popular, yeah. I mean, not not a huge shocker, but a little bit. Like I think it could have gone yeah. the other way. I enjoyed it. Um, I talk, you know, I talked to people who didn't, you know, I, I actually, one of my friends said something that I thought was really good, which is that she said it reminded her of, uh, all the things she liked about Game of Thrones and all the things she didn't like about Game of Thrones. I'm like, is yeah. that, is that good? But I think they, I think they, uh, I'm going to give it more, uh, episodes. I was not a hundred percent convinced that I was going to want to watch this show, but after episode one, I'm like, okay, yeah, actually I'm, I'm, I'm in, but we'll see, right? Like. In the end, how many people are still watching at the end of the season is really the the, the greater measure, I think, than than people tuning in for a premiere. If it if it manages to keep up or build, then because of word of mouth and good reviews or whatever, then that's great. And if it trails off because everybody sampled it and then said I'm out, then it's it doesn't matter what the premiere rating was because right. people aren't following through. Right. The cost of acquiring a customer is much higher than the cost of retaining a customer, but having enough that uh, strong referral value from that show, which means, you know, are people just as interested in other HBO Max things is far more important to, uh, or not more important, but, you know, I think from a longevity perspective, important to HBO Max than than just that one customer acquisition. I will say I really enjoyed the show. My, um super into it. But I mean, like, I have a thing for like hot evil blondes. And so like I was like, I want into this regardless. And then I saw TikTok. There was like all this discourse on TikTok and it was just really funny to me because like Jason, I'm sure you remember when the original Game of Thrones came out in 2011 and all these and all these TikTokers were like, you know, love the show, but I don't know how I feel about this potential stance on incest. And I was like, wow, we are having the same debate 11 yeah. years later that we had on Twitter with yeah, Game of Thrones. And so, and so I'm glad that the new generation is having their Game of Thrones they moment. They get their moment it's it's yeah. nice uh actually talking about like um how you judge success and you made a really great point there that i want to emphasize which is it's not just how does it premiere and it's not just how many people are loyally following it to the end it's also right. are you bringing people to the service or helping retain people on the service right it's that we spent so much money on house of the dragon as hbo um and we're never you know it's going to be a long time before we see that return but it, it it doesn't just pay off directly. It pays off indirectly in getting people to sign up for HBO Max or keep it and then watch other stuff. And that that, that like it's a much more complicated judgment. Um, and that's why I wanted to mention this tweet that was going around virally last week from Neil Gaiman, who obviously is the creator of uh, the Sandman comics, along with many, many other things. But the Sandman on Netflix and people have been asking, is there a season two of Sandman? Uh, coming uh, has it been renewed and what Neil Gaiman said is it hasn't been renewed yet and Netflix only cares about the completion rate of the series so if you haven't watched it all the way through if you're one of the people who keeps telling him oh I'm just watching an episode every week and I'll be done in 11 weeks uh, he says that won't please Netflix Netflix wants completion numbers that's what motivates them and I, I, I you know there's a lot going on there because he's a creator and he's trying to get people to watch his show and how much of that is what Netflix has told him and how much of that is that he's trying to, you know, kind of prod his following on social media to watch the show. But uh, what what did you think about this? Because it's, it's yet another way of viewing like how is this is this the key metric for Netflix is just, you know, completion of the season above all else? Because that's that's essentially the equivalent of, of me saying earlier um, the, let's see what the ratings are for the last episode of House of the Dragon, right? How many people stuck with it? It's it's not that different. It, the only difference being that Netflix drops it all at once and House of the Dragon's going to spool out over whatever, eight or ten weeks. There are a few different key metrics of success for a streamer, and Netflix in particular, um, as a company that doesn't have to also think about, you know, how did this perform on our linear channels and then with the DVRs, like their whole thing is, you know, how is this doing for us? So if we think about the customer journey um, from beginning to end, you know, you can see the different inflection points that Netflix cares about. One, as we've talked about in the show many times, how many customers does that title bring in? Like That's the first metric of success. Did this bring in um, more in terms of value of those customers coming in than it did to than it did you know for the overall cost of the show it's one but two which is the much more inherently intrinsic success metrics that Netflix uses for potential renewal potential cancellation potential whatever they're going to do with it 
is how many of those customers watched all of the show. So Netflix breaks this down. We actually know this because they used to report this publicly. This is what they use. It was it's either you know first two minutes, seventy percent or hundred percent, right? So it's it's um, beginners, watchers, and completion completionists. That's what they call it. Um, so the completionist obviously scores a higher point than a watcher who completes seventy percent of it and then stops. And then of course the beginner does two minutes and then stops. Um, then it goes into, okay, of the people who were watchers at 70% and completionists at 100%, how many of those customers or those viewers then watched another Netflix original programming, a second Netflix original programming? That's a different type of point metric system. Then it goes into how many of them watch something that's available on Netflix but is licensed or co-production. And the reason that those two are separated is because of the intrinsic um, – cost structure associated with them. If you have a co-production or something that you're licensing on your platform, you are paying far more for it per month than you are or per year than you are if it's an original production where you're still paying out like residuals and you're still paying stuff on the back end, but you're not also paying out these other companies um, and you're not also, you know, 100% paying for access to those titles. But it's still a point because it's keeping them engaged. You know, the idea of the what is the value of this title to the company? And again, they're looking at cost to value um, uh, as a metric. If if what is the value of this goes beyond, okay, they watch this and then they cancel because that's a really short-term game, but it doesn't really have any incremental effect on the business long-term or in a quarterly period or in a you know two to three-year period. But if they're engaging with the rest of the platform, especially with areas that Netflix is heavily invested in, whether it is fantasy and sci-fi IP that they want to kind of turn into this um, revenue or a borrow via games and experiences, like whatever it might be, like that is an additional point. Um, it's also an additional point if uh, if this show engage. So so that's you know that's all of them. Then there's an additional point if if this show engaged users who are at risk of canceling. Right retention. It's again as we were saying with House of the Dragon, it's much easier um, to retain a customer for the most part, or, or much less expensive, I should say. It's not easier, much less expensive to retain a customer than it is to bring in a new one. But it is can be difficult to keep them uh, if they feel like, well, there's not really anything here for me beyond this initial title I came in from. So does this show engage with that high-risk customer base? That's another point. Um, you know, who is the demographic of the show? Who's coming in to watch this? Is this, you know, women in their 30s who we are really trying to appeal to? And that's something that we're, we're, we're looking at. Okay, great. That's another point. Netflix takes all these points and creates an efficiency metric. It creates, a, a, which is effectively their value metric. It is, what is the efficiency of this title versus what is the average cost, whether it's per episode, per season, whatever it might be, um, of the title. And then from there, it's, you know, a simple formula. It's, you know, if A plus B equals C and C is a positive versus if A, you know, plus B is a negative, if it's a positive, there's this really strong sense of continuing. Now, this is from these like strategic fi- biz dev financial planning side of things. <laughs> this is like, here's how much money this makes. This is the business of show business. The show of show business is entirely reliant on other metrics that are not definable by empirical or numerical data, but are defined by really strong reviews, um, by Emmy nominations, by critical acclaim from others in the industry. All that stuff is equally important and equally weighted. But there is, of course, this like financial side of it that they have to take into account, especially as a company that is undergoing massive um, financial hardship at because of the stock market, because of the cost of content, because of inflation, because of all these different things. You know, Sandman is a type of show that they really want to succeed. And it's so far doing so far. Uh, sorry. It's so far doing that on the show side, right? Like it's got the critical acclaim. The fans are really into it. It's got a bunch of really good reviews. People seem engaged with it. Like that's awesome. On the other side is what Neil Gaiman is getting at, which is like, is it, you know, who is it bringing in? Are people completing it? Are they then watching something else on the platform? Do they hit these metrics that Netflix takes to put into as basis points that Netflix then puts into a, you know, complete, uh, excuse me, into an efficiency rating to then say, okay, yes, even, you know, data from a data perspective and from an empirical perspective, we can argue that this is absolutely a hit and we should continue it. So, I mean... It's not an exact science, right? Like there's so there's t- there's titles. Uh, the Crown, for example, on average, is kind of it's 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 valuable for a bunch of different reasons. It's not making you know as much money as like a five million dollar Hallmark movie that gets two hundred you know million views or whatever. Like I'm just making up numbers. It's not as valuable as that from a cost to value perspective, but 
it gets Emmy nominations. It's a, an example of the prestige TV Netflix wants to do. It works with talent. All that stuff is a net positive for Netflix. So they continue to do it at the cost that they continue to do it at. We're just seeing less of those things happen going forward. But my gut reaction to end this this ramble, my gut reaction is that you know I'm 85 to 90 percent sure the you know Sandman will get a season two renewal. The mm-hmm. question with Sandman and the season two renewal specifically is. Netflix holds this data. Warner Brothers Television produces it. Yeah. WBTV can say, you want to do season two? We want to do season two with you. We're going to charge you more. Like, you want access to it. It's our title. Like, we're going to we're gonna come in, up into this with, in the negotiation. So that's also the thing Netflix has to look at. You know, they're paying WBD for access to this title to keep it on the platform. They're going to pay in negotiations to have additional seasons with it, whatever it might be. WBD is a producing partner. You know, what does that breakdown look like in terms of merch rights? Does If it becomes a massive series, does WBD get gaming and and T-shirt rights? Like, does it go to them? Does Netflix get that? So all these things are also in, in, in play, which is a long way of saying it's really difficult to be it's complicated. like, yeah, here's it, why. But it, it yeah. reminds me also of the um, the Netflix Marvel deal where, you know, we don't know the details of the contract here because this is a, a WBD, like you said, show because it's a DC Comics property. But Netflix is paying for it. But there's the question of like with the Marvel Netflix deal, there was a minimum order per season and there was a budget attached to the contract. And then there was sort of a walk away period. And we don't know the details of the Sandman contract, but like it's possible that Netflix would come back and say, we don't want to pay as much for this, or we don't want to do as many episodes or that, you know, whatever the contract is, or that Warner might also renegotiate and say, well, we actually want a little bit more because this performed so well for you. And uh, we, we aren't privy to those contract negotiations. So we, we don't know what the details are, but that's that's why it is so complicated. I will point out, uh, Sandman, top uh, number one English TV show on Netflix for three for three weeks running, all three weeks that it's been out uh, by quite a lot, actually. So it's performing in the grossest of categories, which is hours viewed. It is performing well. It's huge in the U.S. It's huge in Europe. It's doing OK elsewhere, but it's huge in the sort of the, the markets you'd expect it to do really well in. And that's why I, I think to myself... I get what Neil Gaiman's saying, and I don't think he's lying, but I do think that it's one of these things where the creator of something is strongly motivating his fans to help the show's metrics improve. Of course. Of course. Right? And yeah. that, that it's, you know, it, it's not that he's lying again, but that maybe he's protesting a little too much because it's marketing, right? He's trying to egg on his fans who should be watching it all the way through to do that so that that benefits the show and that makes Netflix so but yeah it doesn't it didn't feel to me like it was a we're in danger of being canceled let's save the sandman it felt more like hey we haven't been renewed yet so maybe you should keep watching <laughs> right which is yeah. not a bad message to to give and then also like you hear stories all the time where creators are like stream the show right like it's the only yeah. metric we have to to help negotiations but what often doesn't come out in these conversations, because why would they? They're private. But it's like you take a show that has a huge fan base. People are watching it. And all signs point to like, well, of course, there should be a season two renewal. And on, and, and then in those negotiations, the big hang up point is like they want to cut the cost of the show by like 20 percent. Right. And like and that's right. the hang up. It's like it's like, oh, well, we can't figure out the production budget on this. But yeah, I I, I for all the negative press Netflix gets about um the quality of its shows, negative press that has gone away now that WBD is kind of just maintaining all headlines. But um, mm. you have something like a Sandman that is just cl- seemingly universally loved uh, and and is kind of the type of show that they really want to do. I, I, I'm not concerned about it getting a season two renewal. I just think there's all these like I refer to them as asterisks. It's like, yes, obviously, asterisks, asterisks, asterisks. Like, here's these other things that they have sure. to figure out. Well, we will we'll keep an eye on it, and of course, report back. I assume that it will be picked up, and uh, and that's all. That's all fine. Um, uh, speaking of WBD, <laughs> we should we should get into it. Um, you know, what we, else we is were, there? <laughs> we we spent all of last time talking about it. Um, there was a big piece in Variety about you know what in the world is going on with the DC stuff because it seems kind of inconsistent that they're they're killing some stuff and they're they're knocking some stuff off of HBO Max, although allowing it to be shopped 
elsewhere, obviously, because it's still a, a WBD production. The animated series is probably going to just go somewhere else, but they don't want it for HBO Max. So a lot of cost cutting, pulling shows off of streaming. Um, so a lot of culling going on there. Um, you wrote about it. There, the creator of Infinity Train uh, wrote about uh, their show disappearing basically from everywhere except um, a la carte purchase from Amazon and iTunes. So just off of streaming entirely. Um, so there's a lot, a lot to dig into here. Again, I feel like that there, this is a huge story, and yet also is often blown out of proportion or misunderstood a little bit but it's still a huge story where uh zaslav and his people are are making a lot of cuts i've i've seen arguments that a lot of the culling of of less popular shows so that they don't have to pay um any uh residuals on them is not going to save them a lot of money you know less than a hundred thousand dollars when he's trying to cut billions but it's not nothing on the other hand um, and I wanted to start maybe with this letter that we got from one of our listeners, Dave from the 513. I'm pulling it out of the letter section because it fits right here. Dave says, uh, explain how HBO saves money on residuals by taking unpopular shows off streaming. If there's a f- Is there a fixed residual that is paid as long as a show is published? I thought residuals were variable costs. The more people watch, the more that was paid. It seems like the joke about losing money on every unit but making it up in volume. By taking the shows off, there'll be fewer viewers. That's a bad thing, isn't it? Is the thought that the amount they save in residuals is greater than the erosion in subscribers? It's very counterintuitive that removing the back catalog of a streaming service would meaningfully reduce costs. That's Dave from the 513. So what you, what are you thinking? So a few things. One, I can confirm that it's not $100,000. It's high tens of millions per year uh, that they're saving. Right. Less than, less, than less than 100 million. That's if I said thousands, I meant millions. it's high tens, which I, I translated as less than 100 million. Right, right. And the other thing. So this is where I become, you know, everyone's least favorite person. <laughs> the titles that are being removed as absolutely suck for fans for fans of those shows there's nothing you can say from an accounting perspective that's going to make you feel better accounting doesn't make anyone ever feel better and we've Uh, gotten used to a ubiquitous availability of programs right in the streaming era right and so the idea that you can't stream it at all is like a shock this is right this is the overarching point exactly that right so no matter what you say to creatives not you say to fans it's going to suck on the other side of it if you kind of look at it so the first part is that you know just residuals it's partially just residuals to get into residuals of, that are that are happening right now in hollywood would take a bunch of different lawyers and um like an hour another hour when we could do that podcast we could find a way to do that podcast where lawyers explain why the residual situation is such a mess why nobody wants to talk about it in terms of in terms of journalists or write about it because it's such a mess it's no one knows what is happening and all the lawyer, the top lawyers are trying to figure it out. They're like actively working on this. Um, trying to figure out residuals without any data to go off of, super difficult um, to negotiate. So that's one. Two, it's not just residuals though. It is it is a lot of these shows that they were co-productions. Um, they're still paying mm. other companies to maintain those on the service. So that's another one. And three, and this is, you know, the part that we have to come to, they Look at the engagement on these shows as a whole versus the cost of keeping them. And then what they do is here's a quick breakdown. There is something called in, what, what what we'd look at a shows in streaming as an intangible asset. So a tangible asset is like a DVD, right? Like you can touch it, you can define the value of it. It's a tangible asset. A property would be like a tangible asset. An intangible asset, something like a streaming show, is really hard, or like even a brand, like an IP, like that's an intangible asset. It's really hard to project the value of that thing over the next five to six years. You can try to do it, but what a lot of the times what happens is companies will look at something and say, is the value of it right now greater than what the value of it is likely going to be in two to three to you know four or five years? If it is, and it's still not valuable, it's still acting as a cost, you can remove it. And then there's like weird tax windows where you can like write it down or write it off. But this is not this is not included in that. So if you have something like Warner Brothers Discovery looking at the content on their platform, they're not removing everything, right? They're figuring out what to remove. The bigger takeaway is not like, oh, they removed 36. I, I think like they're close to 50 shows at this point and movies or whatever. It's not that they've removed 
50 titles, it is, okay, what are they removing? They're removing kids programming. They're removing uh, some animated programming. And that says to me that they're strategically moving away from kids in animation. Why? To be in kids in animation takes a whole lot of investment. You can't just do three, four, five shows. You are in on movies. You're in on TV shows. You're creating for that audience. If you're Warner Brothers Discovery, the vast majority of your subscriber base is, let's say, between 18 and 50 years old. They're not coming in for kids' content. And you're looking at not just Netflix and Apple who really want to get into it and have the money to do it, but you're looking at YouTube and are like, kids are just hanging out there for free. They're just going to go, YouTube doesn't have to do anything, and they have they have kids. If you're trying to cut down $3 billion in synergy costs and you're trying to figure out short-term gains to help, to help with short-term pains, kids in animation – starts to make a lot of sense, especially if they're not performing. And the last thing I'll add on to it is the way to think about the value of content versus the cost, especially for an HBO Max, which is just about to be inundated with a bunch of Discovery Plus programming, is that the whole issue is discovery. If there's not enough discovery, there's not enough engagement. If there's not enough gauge engagement, the value perception of that platform starts to shift. If the value perception of the platform shifts into the negative zone, it leads to an increase in churn. And churn means it's much harder to bring those subscribers back than it is to keep them. And it's much more expensive. And so what they're saying is there's low engagement on these titles regardless compared to other titles on the platform. We're going to remove some of them. We're going to be able to cut, you know, save tens of millions of dollars, which doesn't seem like a lot. But then you add in, you know, what they're doing with films, what they're adding with labor, and it all kind of adds up. And they're basically saying this is something that we think makes sense financially and won't hurt customers as much as if we do something much more egregious. And the last thing I'll say on it is that they are not the only company that does this. They're far from the only company that does this. They're just the only company where they're getting caught and they're doing it <laughs> at a rate and that is much. And there's narrative now, right? <laughs> and there's narrative and now people are on the lookout for it and it's, and they're doing it at a, at a much faster rate. If you look at the way that Netflix handles this, Netflix takes co-productions off all the time. Like, and But a lot of them are like titles people don't normally care about. Uh, a lot of them are titles that are costing them money, and they but they do it slowly. And they're kind of like, okay, these are going to be removed. I think the bigger issue is exactly what Jason said. Is, it's what I wrote about in Puck. It's what I've been saying on other podcasts. We came – first first of all, streaming irrevocably and changed human behavior at a speed that is incomprehensible. If we think about like the technology shift in general over the last 10 to 20 years versus how long other major shifts happen, the industrial shift, like all like all these other things happen, it's such a short amount of time for our brains to process for consumer behavior to just radically shift and then and then uh, and then what happened was that train was going 110 miles an hour and then hit a brick wall, right? It was streaming and television was more and more and more and more and more. And we conditioned people to understand that. We conditioned people to understand that those titles are not going to disappear. They might move from platforms, right? Like it might go from Hulu to Netflix, but they're always available because for a long time, there was a lot of money being poured into streaming, for, including from Wall Street. There was a lot of money coming in and people were like, this is great. Netflix was also the only option available. And that company was at a $700 stock and they were using their partner's content. So everything was like, wow, everything is here. You know, everything is in one or two places and I have access to it. And we're adding more and more and more. And then reality happened. Then the market actually expanded into a market. Other streamers came into play. They took their content back. And all of a sudden, Wall Street wised up and said, oh, huh, it's not just how many customers you have. It is how much money are you making on those customers versus how much money are you pouring in and losing on those customers. And that, like this, shifted everything. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, Disney has $5 billion in revenue on streaming and 100 and uh, or whatever million subscribers at Disney Plus. I can't remember what it is right now. Great. They're also losing $1.1 billion in operating income on it. And they have a parks business and ESPN to help out. What does Netflix have? You know, What does WBD have? What, what does this look like? That means they have to find cuts. And where they find cuts is on programming on the platform that is not being engaged with, that they're paying out a higher rate to than what they're making on it and making strategic shifts away from areas of content like kids programming that is not working for them in the short term and is a short term pain that they need to fix immediately. That is what is happening here. The focus is on like 200 episodes of Sesame Street that disappeared. That is not as important as everything that has led up to why this is happening and why you're going to continue seeing it happening across all platforms. 
That's the that's the cold hard truth, right? And like that, like I said, the narrative is is what it is, and and you know it sucks. Like we can't. Th- this is the thing about explaining this stuff is is doesn't mean that it, it's good for fans, but it means you got to understand why they're doing it, and that it does make some sense to them. I wonder though about the the fallout because mm-hmm. yes. I, and I've read this. There was there was the piece. Uh, on on puck which requires a subscription but um i paid for it i pay for it for julia uh that's just to read Aww. your your pieces but there are other pieces there too and one of the the challenges is i could look at this and say the problem is it is giving uh warner brothers discovery a uh a little bit more of a, a, a it's tarnishing the reputation a little bit yes. about their relationship with yes. uh with the creative people in hollywood and there is a cynical response to that which is you know if their money's still good they're still going to take their money but if you're a hot creator in hollywood and you've got a choice and one of your choices is with a company that you don't entirely trust because of what they've been doing um you're going to you know, if all other things are equal, um, lean toward not doing business with them. And that is a risk for them. At the same time, I mentioned the the puck piece. I've definitely seen a couple of pieces from people who are coming from the perspective of a, of a business person and an investor yeah. who say, who, who like the idea that uh, David Zaslav and potentially Bob Chapek are outsidery enough from Hollywood that they can put those Hollywood types in their place and pay them less because too often the uh, the everybody gets too enamored of the of the stars and the creative types and they lose track of the bottom line. I think it's a fascinating way to view it and I think that both of them both views have a little bit of merit to them, but you know it is. But the second view is very much like, well, they just work for us and we'll we'll pay them what we want and, and we'll like it. And in a creative endeavor, like it is a creative business. It is not just yes. business. And that's the biggest, I think, the biggest risk to Warner Brothers Discovery right now. And if I'm Casey Bloys at HBO, that is my number one priority right now is to reassure all of my talent that it's going to be okay. Because right. you don't want people not doing business with your company because... Even if you're making good business decisions because it looks so bad. I mean, this is 100% accurate. And I think the long term, I think I wrote about this in Puck, like the long term issue approaching WBD is that exact situation. It is talent going like, well, I don't, I can't trust WBD. I don't trust them. And I, and I, I want to go elsewhere. The issue, you know, I've, I've talked about this off, super often. I, I work with producers on this. I work with talent. And the thing I always say to them is like, the 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 divide between what um uh the power in Hollywood continues to grow like that that gap continues to widen each and every day and what's happening is that we are seeing an increasingly consolidated market it will continue to increasingly consolidate and then you run into issues with the studio which the studio system will recognize from like the 1940s where you, all of a sudden you've got three major players who are making all choices they're making huge bets on certain talent and they're kind of controlling the distribution and the and the supply side of uh, of what's happening, and that makes it really difficult to operate. And because if you're not working with you know Warner Brothers Discovery, hypothetically they merge with an NBC Universal, and I use that because there's all these rumors about it. You know whether or not it happens, I doubt. But but you know let's say that happens. Well, now you've got one less party to sell to. Disney acquires mm. Fox. You've got one less party to sell to. All of a sudden, there's like there's the only players, and they're not giving away any information. The worst thing that happened. In the stream, the move to streaming was that creatives and producers lost out on like Nielsen and the box office. They no longer had anything to be like, yes, our show is valuable. You know, the Owen Dennis, the creator of Infinity Train, can't go and say, actually, my show has this many viewers of this type of viewer. That's really great for your your platform. There, he has, or they have none of that. There's nothing there for them to bring, and so all of a sudden. Warner Brothers Discovery says your show is more costly than it is valuable to us. We're going to remove it and we're just not having kids stuff in in general. You can't fight back on it. I think what we'll see is that shift, whether it's through the unions and and striking. I think everyone's pretty much accepted that there will be a strike next year with the writers because of residuals, because of everything going on in that way, uh, because they're working twice as hard for half the pay. You know, all these all these types of things are happening. What I will say, and um, this is going to, you know, sound controversial, but the internet can often operate in black and white, right? What? This is bad. This is good. 
there's no in between. And the reality of it is that you need the show of show business. You need creators. Without them, there is nothing, right? You need that content. You need those good relationships. You need people like Casey Bloys at HBO, like John Landgraf at FX, like Kevin Feige at Marvel, and like Bob Iger, who's used to be Disney. You need them who know talent and who can work with talent and understand that without them, you have nothing. And then you need your Zazlavs and your Chapex, and you need someone who goes, Yes. Also, though, we have a fiduciary duty to our shareholders and there's a business in show business and we want to operate on that end. A perfect company has both and is very aware of how to work with both parties to ensure that everyone is happy and that they are seen as a talent friendly place uh, and also as a company that can bring great um, revenue and great profits to their investors. Right. Like those two things. The issue is that streaming used to be this thing that everyone was in on. Again, we've talked about this in the podcast, right? Like the idea that Netflix sat with Google and Apple makes no sense. Like that was a weird thing. Those are octopuses with tentacles and Netflix is a tentacle. Like it's a different, it's weird. But when that snap happened, when that shift happened from, okay, we don't care about subscriber growth anymore. We care about revenue. And the newer players haven't had time to build revenue and, or excuse me, profitability, to build the profitability that Netflix spent 10 years building. All of a sudden, not only are they losing a pl- their place in the stock, are they, and they're going billion, they're losing billions in valuation because of what's happening. But two, they're increasing their costs at a time when, when their inflation is at a high point and their other businesses are still struggling, right? Like linear is losing customers and parks. It's, it's really, people don't want to go to Florida in a mask or whatever it might be. These things are still happening. And now they're losing the, the support of the stock market. The, the bull market went to a bear market and streaming was kind of at, at, the, at the top of, of losing out on that. In the same way that Peloton was, all these pandemic stocks, right? Like everything shifted. That's really difficult to, to try and maneuver, especially if you're the CEO of a new company and, is, and, and you think that the last management overspent. I don't think that's true, but you think like last management overspent. Now you're trying to course correct on that end. It's really difficult. And it's difficult if you're working at that company and you're building talent relationships and you don't know what to tell talent because you don't know, first of all, if you're going to be there in a week. And you also don't know who you're reporting to or what the direction of the company is. All of which is to say, again, there's so much emphasis on like 200 episodes of Sesame Street from before 1985 leaving. And from a like content archivist perspective in my heart, that devastates me. But also... They're not removing Game of Thrones. They're not removing Suicide Squad, right? They are not removing um, The Sopranos or or West Wing. There are titles that they're like, these are engaged with. These are valuable to us still. They're removing titles that are part of a strategic shift and are not as valuable to them as, and they're extreme and they're more costly. And that sucks. But we have moved from the show part of show business in a very strong bull market to a business part of show business in a very scary and looming bear market. And I think that that is the rationale behind a lot of it. It doesn't ease any pain. It doesn't make creatives feel better. It doesn't make creatives want to work with any of these companies like much more. But it is what's happening. Yeah, that's the reality of it. Um, we're This is an episode, by the way, with great segues because – uh, talking about the running running the business and choosing your business and and the the market and how we value streamers and especially how we value streamers has changed because the 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 land rush isn't over but like the mm-hmm. big investment in the land rush seems to be fading away you made a comment on twitter i think today that i thought was really interesting and i wanted to at least touch on i know we've we've been talking about this since the very beginning it's the idea of the content arms dealers and what do you want as an entertainment company if you're running an entertainment company what do you want to be we've seemed to have exited the point where everybody's like well we want to be one of the streaming services that's there when the music stops we want to be like netflix um there still will be more than just netflix even as this shakes out but you pointed out what Sony has done, which is interesting because Sony does not have a substantial streaming service of its own, but what they do have is Sony TV, which has big hits on multiple streaming services and cable channels. They have Sony Pictures, where they've got a whole bunch of different movie franchises, including uh, the Spider-Man franchise, and all of their intellectual property attached to PlayStation. Uh, the Last of Us is on HBO. I think that's... Is that a is that a Sony Sony yeah, published that Sony. right? Yeah. So like 
and, and as you said, all without the overhead of running a streamer. And your your argument essentially is, look, if I'm NBC Universal and I've got strong theatrical, strong TV, great library, and Peacock is struggling, do you look at it that in some at some point and say, why are we in this business? Uh, you know, not everybody has to have a streaming service, even though almost everybody does right now. Yeah, I mean, Sony. I think I, I before like back in twenty like eighteen, twenty nineteen. I remember writing a piece that was like Sony's one. Like Sony, Sony looked around <laughs> and said, "This nope. feels like a bunch of sharks fighting over one arm, <laughs> and all these sharks are going to need." blood they they need they need something to feed on they need okay. they want this thing that, which is that, that metaphor got weird but i'll go with it yeah you know it's it's fine I, we're the sharks are gonna need sharks. blood i mean they are we, they're sharks we've got we, we we've got a lot of um ocean animals uh, analogies today but you know you, you think of these sharks they need something to eat on they need something to chew on they which is content right they need content and sony looked around at what it owns and what it does really well and was like well we got that we, we got a lot of that. We have proven that we can do that. Um, and we can and we've proven that our stuff is so in demand that we can charge like three times what it's worth because these streamers uh, or these content companies are, are like desperate for it. Now, with that said, if you look at an HBO Max, their whole thing is like our major, obviously, players, Warner Brothers. You look at Disney, their major player is Disney. If you look at NBC Universal, their major player for Peacock is Universal. They all have their own studios that all these CEOs of these kind of combined conglomerates are like, well, why would we pay for more? But they still want certain things. They're still buying TV shows from Sony TV. They still want the big gaming adaptation because gaming is the next, you know, comic book era thing where everyone's like, we want to buy in on that. So you have HBO with The Last of Us. I, they just announced at Netflix that they're doing a Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, you've got, a, I mean, got Resident Evil at Netflix. You've got a bunch of stuff happening at all these different um, players. Amazon's got a bunch, like Twisted Metal. They're doing a Twisted Metal thing. They've got a bunch. Sony comes out and says, cool. You know, one of the biggest things Sony did is they inked a like $1.1 billion deal. It might be more than that with Netflix for their pay one window, which just means that after those movies are in theaters on on Netflix, uh, excuse me, in theaters for Sony, they go to Netflix exclusively. Netflix loves this. They want Uncharted. They want Spider-Man. That's a huge draw for them. They don't have movies of that of that stature. So it's a massive thing for them. And Sony gets to do all of this without having an owned and operated platform that costs them a billion dollars extra right. in um, <laughs> in cost and is isn't guaranteed. I think this is where we I keep coming back to. We talked on this podcast, you know, early, like episode one or two. Who are the streamers that we think last? I like Peacock. I like the idea of Peacock. I, and I'm, I'm not saying Peacock's going away in the next two years. I think it's really difficult for NBC Universal to translate the value of that platform to customers in an oversaturated market already and where they're making stuff that isn't like, oh, I need to sign up for this. Either there's a version of this that I can watch elsewhere, like, I, you know, it's a reality show and I don't need that one if I can get a similar one over here. Um, or they're like, I just you know, don't care enough to sign up for this. Like, I'll miss out on that and watch something else. There's more television than ever before. You know, I always think my opinion is they should lean really hard on Bravo. I think Bravo is a huge thing for Peacock. But point being, if it's really hard to translate that, it doesn't matter how much money you spend on originals or how much money you spend on that platform. It's just not going to grow at the speed that you need it to grow to create strong profitability as a subscriber platform. You know, as an ad-supported platform, it's a whole other conversation. But um like like that's kind of what you see and i think with sony you know other other examples include lionsgate who like sells all their stuff like they they don't have an, an own i mean they have stars but not really like they're not a whole thing um you look at all these companies who are kind of like yeah we don't want to be in the, in the streaming wars we don't necessarily care right now uh, keyword being right now about that one-to-one -one customer relationship now i do think sony will do something very interesting i do think in the next few years and experimental markets, they'll start with Europe, I think, is they will take some of those titles that they're giving to other companies in a pay one window, and they'll put them onto PlayStation. And I think there will be a world where they look at kind of PlayStation now and the PlayStation subscriber market and say, we think we can build this even stronger and generate really strong revenue by taking some of our key movie and TV titles and putting them here and kind of launching something within a larger space that is not just entertainment it's not just gaming it's kind of a little bit of both but for the meantime especially in an established market like the u.s 
why not? Like, just be overcharged for your stuff. You get to be in theaters. So talent loves you because they're like, Sony, all Sony's going to say is like, yeah, we're going to buy your movie and put it in theaters. Or if not, you're going to get a really nice check because we're going to sell it for three times the cost to Netflix or Amazon. So in either way, you're going to get paid. But we are committed to the theatrical experience. So talent's happy. On the TV front, they do the same thing. And they're like, listen, no matter what, we're going to sell this at a pretty good price to an Apple. Apple loves Sony. Apple TV Plus is literally is headed up by some of Sony TV executives, former Sony TV executives. Right. So you kind of look at it. They're in a great position. And I just think we will get more to that point. But that's not new right like we've all been project you know um, predicting that one or two of these platforms are going to eventually go away and the companies will go into you know we call them content arms dealer to a content arms dealer role i just think out of all of them right now nbc universal has a lot that it can offer that pe- that is in demand programming that they can just license out to different platforms and license out to different networks and license out to whatever they want to do um without having to try and compete in the streaming space. Now, again, just to reiterate, because I love Peacock, I, I genuinely love Peacock. That's not to say I think they are for sure going to go away. They also have an ad platform or an ad supported aspect. And that's a huge part of this conversation. But I just think out of all of them, it feels the least necessary, which I don't think is news to them. And it's really hard to bring in customers and then keep them, um, especially when they are just naturally going elsewhere. Yeah, it's funny because I always thought of them as being behind. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, maybe they are, maybe Sony's smart for not having to be where the cool kids are, right? They rush, that land rush where it's like, well, we're going to, all of us have to spend so much money to get these seats at the table. And Sony's just like, or I could just have you pay me. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I, I, think, I think if you're a company like a Sony or any company, I... There, I just can't. I imagine looking at all these things launching, doing the math, right? Like based on public knowledge that we have of like the average income of a household and what they want to spend on entertainment, and also looking at the pandemic and thinking this is not going to last, as in like what people are doing behavior wise, and just kind of being like, well, that's a huge investment for a maybe business that becomes profitable for us. I think it makes a lot of sense for a Disney where you're like, we want to sell theme park passes. We would like to sell more merchandise. We would like to have that direct customer attention. I think it makes a lot of sense for um, the way Paramount's doing it. I think it makes a lot of sense where Paramount effectively is catching subscribers that are leaving them and kind of saying like, here, for five bucks, <laughs> you can come in and we're, and we're generating a lot of ad money. Like we're all in on ads. And I do think if you have the size of a WBD, and that program, and and you kind of have this HBO thing built in. I think there's probably a, a pretty good chance that you're that's a profitable business for them down the line. For everyone else, it's like maybe, maybe there's something here. And I think Sony smartly, which I said in 2018, very smartly was like, nope, <laughs> like not interested. Yeah. Um, let's, again, good segue because our first letter is about a very similar subject. So why don't we go into the letters? Woo! Love letters. Um, this is from Ben from the 804. I love the podcast. I had a question about the ad-supported subscription subscription streaming services. Easy for me to say. Like Hulu with ads, Paramount Plus with ads, and of course the upcoming Netflix and Disney Plus with ads. How much additional revenue per user is a streamer getting from selling ads? For example, each episode of Blues, Clues, or Peppa Pig that my daughter watches on Paramount Plus has multiple ad breaks, so obviously the streamers are making more money off of me than just my fee. Does it approach the commercial-free ARPU, uh, average revenue per user? I don't know if you know this, but it's a really good question of of, uh, who's more valuable to a streamer, uh, somebody who's paying a little and watching ads or somebody who's paying more and not seeing ads. Um, I can tell you for a fact that ads create much higher ARPU than an ad free, at least as it stands right now. The best example we have of that is um, Hulu where Hulu's ARPU is pretty exceptional for what the uh, cost, cost of that customer is. Um, ads in general, you know, it's funny. It's like we we moved away from ads and everyone was like, we don't need ads anymore. And then everyone realized ads actually are a great business. It's, it's a phenomenal business. And it's a re- there's a reason that it has stuck around as long as it has uh, and performed as well as it has as a market, as an industry um, for, you know, into today. So I think you know, yeah, is it is it worth more to them? Sorry, is it worth more to them if you're part of the advertised supported 
stream. Not necessarily. They are making additional revenue off of it. But then there's a whole lot of other things that goes in with the advertising. Again, like asterisks, asterisks, asterisks. Like what they would really love is to go ad free and have you come into the ad free and then eventually continue to raise those prices. And then the ad free ARPU creates uh, or average revenue per user becomes pretty high. And then they own that entirely. They own that customer relationship. You know, with the advertisers, then there comes into this conversation about sharing metrics and sharing data and necessarily something they want to do. Um, But also just from a financial standpoint, point, it's not either or, right? Ideally, most companies want both because why would you turn away any type of revenue? Um, One generates a a certain type of revenue, one generates a different type of revenue, but combined, you know, that's what you really want. Uh, So I will say, I don't think any of these companies are, you know, disappointed if an ad-free user goes to an ad-supported user. It's, It's a different type of revenue. Sometimes it may be more, sometimes it may be less, depending on where it's coming in from. But they really just want to find ways to bring you in and keep you. And that's because once they bring you in, again, the cost of keeping you is much less and the cost of losing you than having to bring you back in. Like that at customer reacquisition cost, the ad platform just allows that to be an easier, you know, reduced churn level of, of spending. So I would say from a literal level, if you compare Hulu um, to others, like Hulu is a great example of an ad supported um, ARPU being really strong for Disney. It's being a, a very, very strong thing for that company. Um, doesn't mean it's the same for every company and it's always changing. Yeah, as long as I, my feeling is basically as long as I can pay to not see the ads. I'm happy for them to do whatever with ads, but like that's, that's the one, please don't take away my ability to just not see ads because I, I will pay to not see them. But I think it's great that, um, people can spend less or, or nothing in the case of, of the free streaming services, uh, to see content, uh, with ads. That's also a good thing to make it more affordable. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is from Brian Hamilton, our, our pal, uh, and they write, after the letter about why Stranger Things isn't one eight-hour-long movie, I had a thought. How cool <laughs> it, would, it would be if streamers made episodes shorter rather than longer. If a chapter of the story only needs 20 minutes to tell, they can make the episode 20 minutes while the rest of the episodes are an hour. The only shows I know of that ever do this are The OA on Netflix, The Politician on Netflix, and The Bear on Hulu. Can you think of any other streaming shows that included a shorter episode in service of the story? Um, I've, I have seen some. I don't, I don't know if I can say off the top of my head The Bear is a great example of that. But... Um, but I totally get what Brian is saying here, which is it, it, I kind of for shows for streaming, I kind of love it when they just vary the, sh- the lengths based on their story they're telling instead of trying to fit everything in the same size box. Yeah, I don't know if I can think off any off the top of my head. Um, I thought maybe Bojack did something with the other way where they went longer, but I mm-hmm. could be completely wrong. And I love the idea, though. Also, yeah. I ju- you know, I think Jason and I talk about this in the podcast a lot. You have the room to experiment. He's just experiment. <laughs> just like play around. Yeah, uh, I know there's one. Did Ted Lasso do that? I know. I, I definitely know I've seen a streaming show that had a surprisingly short episode and also a surprisingly long episode. And I love that about it. That's the beauty of this. I do wonder sometimes... Um, this is less of an issue now, but I still wonder if everybody's like, yeah, but if it's around the same length, then we're open to future, like putting it on broadcast or selling it on broadcast somewhere else. And if all the links are really variable, that makes it a tougher proposition to sell it. And like, I get that. Uh, but artistically it, it would be, it would be great. Wouldn't it? If you have eight hours of content and you put them in the, in, in the shape that they, that they fit in instead of having them be kind of like all exactly 42 minutes long. Um, yeah, bear bear really good by the way that was so that's good. a great example because they did their essentially real-time episode and that one's short but great also just a great show great show just a phenomenal show just just go in, i i recommend going in completely cold as i did not knowing anything about it and being blown away by how good it was i think you know just Thinking about the bear in general, it's a little off topic, but I would love to hear um, listeners' opinions on this and Jason, your opinion. I think when we talk about what we've been talking about in this podcast and this idea of like talent relationships potentially disappearing and how companies are kind of, you know, when they prioritize accounting over other things, um, I think one of the things I was thinking about with the bear as you were talking is like, man, you know, I just tuned into it knowing nothing, but it was FX. 
And I was like, ah, I assume it's going to be good. Like, it's FX. Like, in the way that I assume things with HBO are just naturally going to be good because it's HBO. Um, And I wonder if you guys have a network or studio, you know, 824 on the film side, where this was just being talked about, actually, because 824 turned 10. um, You know, where it's like, I don't know anything about it. I'm going to go in blind. But it has this branding with it. And I worry that that will go away if, if, you know, we if the creative powers, if the Casey's, if the Johns don't get the freedom to kind of do mm. what they have been doing for so long. But yeah, I think that's kind of fun to think about is, you know, what what brand do we associate with, with the what you watch where you're like, no, eh, I'm going to tune in. Like even, I don't know what it is, but. Well, I honestly, I think that that's been some of the, the magic of HBO through the years and even some of the HBO Max content is that I don't watch all HBO stuff. Um, but when I see something that's on HBO, I think to myself, I, I look at it through a lens of, well, it's HBO, right? And like that gives me more, many more clues about whether I want to give it a try. And if I was completely uninformed about what was on it, what was that, what that show was about or what people thought of it, it might be a harder sell. But when I apply like my knowledge of the HBO brand to what I know about that show, that changes the equation. And I think that's the some of the power of that. FX is like that a little bit too. I was going to say Hulu. FX on Hulu is weird. And then there's FX content. But it's a similar thing where it gives me a little bit of an imprint that is like it isn't going to convince me to watch everything that they do. But it helps me have a better sense of what I'm going to get than if I've just somebody mentioned the name of a show like the like the bear I knew enough to know like okay I can I can guess at what its sensibility is a little bit though I although I didn't know what the show was actually about yes yes um let's do one more letter this is uh from William who says I was having a discussion with some genre fans in a discord these are folks who are lukewarm on properties like Star Wars and the MCU, but love shows like Voltron, Umbrella Academy, and She-Ra. Mm. One of the points of discussion was that everybody talks about Netflix failing to create the big IP franchises, but these fans were less bothered by that and more with how all the middle stuff isn't happening anymore or gets axed after one or two seasons. There's still schlocky stuff that they like, but without the middle quality shows, there's no reason for them to subscribe to Netflix anymore. Is this a bunch of genre hipsters talking, or is this a situation where data can be a little misleading? Netflix wants hits and it also knows from the data that people watch the crap is there a point where a service has hollowed out the middle class shows in terms of budget or prestige so much that it leads to a situation where from a subscriber perspective the service just doesn't have enough value um, or or does the Netflix data account for those subscribers love to your mothers from the 612 so basically the question here is are you noticing anything about like the dangers of a trend where you've got your big ticket items and your cheap items and you it's sort of like what happened in film where where the 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 mid budget stuff that is really good and has its following and helps fill out the catalog falls by the wayside because you're either making a big play for big budget or you're just trying to fill the catalog yeah i mean i think it's a question of perspective and 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 personal taste i think for a lot of people the type of reality, you know, unscripted programming that we would kind of consider middle of the road stuff that Netflix is investing in and putting out is like a big thing for them and they're happy with it and they don't really care about animation stuff disappearing or the big budget stuff. I think for other people, you know, they're coming in for the big fantasy sci-fi shows and that's sustaining them and they're happy with it. And then so for others, if that's where the focus is and they're losing out on, on the Shiraz and the Voltrons, um, which great shows, um, you know, like for them, the platform becomes less valuable. The thing about content, you know, investment, the the and budget allocation for it, and kind of the strategic, you know, content strategy for where you you push into. Some of it is absolutely based on data. Sixty one percent of our viewers are interested in you know female vampire stories. Cool. Well, let's do something with female vampires or whatever it might be. Um, you know, ten percent of our customers are really into. Um, Greek mythology stories that you know, might do less with Greek mythology stories. It's not going to hit a, a huge base. It's not really going to help them grow. But a lot of this is still content direct, uh, creative directors and, and creative directives um, and content directors who come in and, and know good shows, right? And they're just I, – I always I always think about HBO doing this really well, but I would give credit to like Netflix too to an extent trying to trying to figure this out and Disney on the Hulu side trying to figure it out where they're kind of like – 
We're going to do a succession, right? We're going to do a Righteous Gemstones. Like, 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 like we think this is a great show and we really want to stand by it. But the only way to do that show is if you've got a House of the Dragon, right? The only way to do that show is if you've got a Suicide Squad or whatever it might be coming in. It's like, cool, we can support that. You know, HBO, and this isn't the current economic model. Before HBO was like, had its HBO thing and it was very successful and it found its success in DVDs and it had its own overhead costs. And it was different than, you know, being a part of this giant you know vessel that is hbo max or whatever it might be um but what i will say is it really comes down to personal taste i mean that is kind of the thing about streaming it's you vote with your credit card your i like what you're doing cool i'm going to continue paying i don't like what you're doing i'm going to discontinue i'm going to go over to where this other this other guy is doing this thing and he i really like what they're doing um and you get if it gets to a point where enough people are canceling because their credit with their because their vote their credit card is saying like i don't like the direction you're going in maybe you change your content strategy right you're like well we oh, we got to appeal to those customers how can we appeal to them and it's it's a never ending game of tug of war it's extremely difficult it's an extremely difficult thing to figure out especially if you are a general entertainment platform if you are a netflix if you are a hulu if you are to an extent an hbo max where you're kind of like we're, you know, Kenya Barris, who was the showrunner of, of Blackish, said this, and I think he meant it as like, I don't even think he meant it as an insult. I think he was just being honest, and people took it as an insult. And he said, you know, Netflix is trying is is becoming a CBS. And people were really insulted by that because Netflix is always like we're trying to be HBO. But I think what Kenya's saying, and, and I, I agree with, is if you're trying to reach a hundred million homes, you have to be a CBS. You're not going to be an HBO. Like, like it's just not going to be what you're doing. You're, you're going to need the sitcom and they're going to need the animation and you're going to need the genre and you're going to, you're going to need all these different things that appeal to different people to create that level of volume to continue that they subscribe at. That does risk alienating people. And they know that. I mean, Reed Hastings said on a, on an earnings call a few, a few quarters ago, maybe even last year that we know you're going to leave and we just hope that we can bring you back. Like, like they, like, they 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 know this and so yeah it's a long rambly way of saying i'm sure there is data and i'm sure they have data i'm sure i have data i could look into for it but for the most part content strategy and then content investment allocation you know really determining where you go with that and how you do it is a very 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 tricky game where you have hopefully a creative director in the form of a casey or a john or a kevin who are like just have a gut sense who know good tv and film and who can pick it who are very good at picking it and saying like we think there's a real audience here and then you know creating revenue off of it and then you also have your your strategy and your financial planning teams who are like hey also we're going to use this data as a lighthouse again to like show you where we think there's room to look into, to find shows and films within this area that we think there's potential in. Sometimes you get it right. Often you don't. Um, that that hasn't changed in 100 years of Hollywood. All right. That is enough for this time. But there's always more. I, I, I'm actually afraid if we ever do like a letter show and skip a month again about what will accumulate because <laughs> there's so much going on. But um, we do love getting your letters, though. So you can send us an email downstream at relay.fm. Or uh, if you're a member of Relay FM, you can do question mark ask downstream in the Relay FM members discord. And of course, you can tweet at us at downstream pod. Love to your mothers. You can find director of strategy Julia at loudmouth Julia on Twitter and parrotanalytics.com and puck.news for that matter. And you can find me at jsnell on Twitter and sixcolors.com. We'll be back in a fortnight. But until next time, Julia, say goodbye. Have a good one, guys. Bye, everybody. <laughs>